0: This is Polyoptics,
1: shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
2: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS politics of the United States. This week, White House Production Chief Palooza. For the first time ever, we've pulled together all the living past White House Production Chiefs into one room. First, Scott Forza, the image guru behind the most iconic presidential images and events of the 21st century. From 9-11 to the Mission Accomplished banner on the USS Abraham Lincoln, Scott's Forza revolutionized the way the American presidency interfaces with the media. And then the rabbi, Steve Rabinowitz, the first so-called White House production chief. As the era of 24-hour news exploded, Steve was in command of the imagery of the Clinton campaign and presidency. Steve was Josh King's mentor, and Scott's Forza was mine. The Fathers of Polyoptics, Part 1, up next, right now on POTUS not
3: red not blue red red white white and blue
2: and blue POTUS Josh I wouldn't be sitting here with you today if it wasn't for our next guest uh, a man with whom I have so much in common as far as the progression of my career but really somebody who's taught me just about everything that I know about polyoptics and personally gave me an opportunity to follow in his footsteps
1: Adam, we have Scott Sforza in the studio today, and there's no one who knows more about producing the presidency than Scott. Uh, Long before he came to the White House... Uh, as a producer at ABC News I learned so much from him and the work that he did with Peter Jennings and Ted Koppel I mean there was one trip that we took with President Clinton to Russia it was the first trip that we took to visit uh, President Yeltsin and Ted Koppel and the Nightline crew came aboard they did five successive nights of coverage of our trip and the way they package stories told me, in successive years, how best to produce stories and design storylines for President Clinton's trips, both in the United States and abroad. So everything that I learned about packaging a presidential candidate or a president in the United States came from the best producers in television, and Scott's one of them.
2: To be sure. And uh, I'm lucky to be looking at the man, the myth, the legend, Scott Forza right now. Welcome to Polyoptics, Scott. That's very kind of both of you. Thank you so much.
0: But, um, you know, I just... Uh,
2: You're a humble guy, but we're going to get down to some yeah. some great stories and some uh, some wonderful reflections, which will give our audience uh, a little bit of in- insight into uh, what you've done in your mm-hmm. career, what you continue to do, and what you pioneered and taught so many of the rest of us. Uh, I guess I'd like to start just by saying something uh, out loud for our audience that, that you told me when we first talked about uh, your job at the white house and uh the potential for me to to try and jump in and fill your shoes and it was you're producing for the president of the united states and everything that you do draws from what's best for him or her and uh i know your personal relationship with the president that we serve but i know also your dedication to the united states and to the office of the presidency um, was it just the most uh uh, wonderful experience of your professional life to serve in the White House, or is it uh, something that uh, you've sort of mellowed on in the years since you've left?
0: No, I uh, I think it was an incredible uh, time of my life. I mean, that was one of the most, uh, I always used to tell everybody at the White House I had the best job there. Um, when you are in that position, you know, it's really, truly an honor and a privilege to be there. As I know you all feel the same way, having been there yourselves, but it's a uh, it's a great opportunity to, to serve your country, serve your president, but really uh, have the ability to do things that really very few people have that chance to do, which is you know be creative, be able to help with the imagery of the presidency and how the president projects his, uh, his message.
2: You developed a lot of the styles and uh, tools of the trade over years and years, but it wasn't as though you came into the Bush uh, administration uh cold you had served previously take us back to the beginning for you I mean as, as Josh referenced, you were a longtime producer at ABC News a place that I spent a lot of time and you have a great reputation there but you've also been involved in multiple presidencies
0: Uh, Yeah, actually, I was at Nightline at the time that um, I was asked to join uh, President Bush 41's administration, and I came over as deputy to media affairs, which was basically to merge public affairs with media relations into one uh, office called Media Affairs, and they really didn't have anybody that really did a focus, uh, that really focused on television, and CNN was relatively new, uh, so the first, uh, that was sort of their first taste of 24-7 news coverage, so I uh, was brought over to uh, really advance that part of the White House uh, to, to figure out a way to, to work with them a lot more effectively in television and also uh, in terms of reaching out further. And we started doing satellite tours, things that sound you know, commonplace today that weren't so much then, uh, and doing uh, video releases of the president and also uh, <coughs> teleconferencing with the president, all You those created things. that
2: first studio in the
0: White House. Well, it, this, there was a studio when I came on board, truthfully, but there uh, it had not been really. Um, I think it, it could have been utilized more than it had been, and I think it was just more of you know people getting familiar with what it, it could do.
1: That's right. I mean, we'll we'll get into I think the use of the of the studio a bit later because obviously when the war in Iraq began, we needed to create both uh, interactive studios at the White House and uh, at the Pentagon and in mm-hmm. the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what's fascinating to me, is, as Adam and I always talk about this, is we walk in the footsteps of people like Michael Deaver, who worked for mm. Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. Sig Rogich, who worked for uh, for President, First President Bush, and you. Mm. But it wasn't until the Clinton administration, and we'll talk to Steve Rabinowitz a little bit later, uh, that they actually created a title of director of production. And Steve was the first, and I was the second. And, mm. and Scott, you brought that job to President Bush. But it's worth probably sharing with listeners wh- who think that, at the White House, there's a press secretary, and there's speechwriters, and there's communications people. But why does a president need a director of production?
0: Well, I think uh, we sort of linked it uh, with communications, of course, we uh, because it was so vital to communicating the president's message, and so. Uh, What we ended up, why it's so critical is that we have such a visual environment now where people get their news from. And I think that that was something that was very glaring and it became very obvious that, you know, optics are everything. The presidency, uh, you know, as we all know, an image is worth a thousand words. I mean, it's just incredible how much images bring home. Uh, the news. And I and I think that uh, when when uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we advance this ball down the field? And I you know i talked to, to Adam about this, too, when we were there together at the, When we overlapped a little bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, we had, um, you know, we always wanted to make sure that, you know, if you saw an image, you could see what the message was in a snapshot and what the president was talking about, where he was, what context, try to To figure out some way to communicate to the American people what was going on, if they even walked by a television with the volume off. And I think we we all, all of us here, uh, have shared that view and tried to to really uh, take that and notch it up, uh, extra, one notch up every time you go. But, I mean, it's it's, it's really one of those things where, yeah, you do want to make sure that you... um, uh... you know i think the, the the part of the the production the visual communications is absolutely crucial because especially when you have a traveling press corps with you that that is a captive audience essentially i mean that you're there to help work with them try to get the shots they want you know and the, and the best uh, scenario is really they want what you want so if you work together you're going to achieve it and i think that's what we all try to work toward
2: one of the things that uh... i think will help give reference to the poly optics audience are some of the uh, some of the presidential events that you've been a part of that have become so iconic on the one-year anniversary of september 11th uh... at ellis island at Mm. night the president addressed the nation with the statue of liberty
3: behind him good evening a long year has passed since enemies attacked our country we've seen the images so many times they are seared on our souls And remembering the horror, reliving the anguish, reimagining the terror is hard and painful.
2: Let's stop right there and think about that. If you think back to that, you'll see it on the website. Take us through that. That was a really uh, far-reaching, incredibly visual and obviously remarkably important night for the president, but for the country. Hmm. Take us through uh, what it was for your vision and how hard it was to accomplish uh, bringing that off at night in New York
0: Harbor. Well, it was really um, uh, sort of a huge undertaking when we first went out there because th- this is exactly how, you know, communications and production cross over. And you, you're really trying to figure out how do you communicate not with, uh, not only with the country but the world. And the president's trying to send a message clearly to the, to the world, to the terrorists, to everybody. And so we had to find a spot that was going to really capture that moment, and, and in a way that was, you know, uh, touching on the past but looking forward, and also inspiring. And so, to do that, we went and took a look at several locations. Of course, uh, we went out to um, Governor's Island, which uh, you see the, as you know, the back of the statue, which which wasn't even a, a, a possibility for us. We just, I just didn't, you know, we need to see the front. Yeah. So, uh, the business we, end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. So, we, we, uh, took a boat ride out to Ellis Island, and, um, uh, fortunately, I mean, it had some really terrific things. I know this, to us, we'll all appreciate this because of the wind that's out there. Uh, the building actually acted as a, a perfect barrier to the wind, but the, the place where the flagpole stood was directly in the wind. So, um, which was key for that night because what we did was the flag was half mast. right and we wanted to to give the image you know we wanted to make sure that, that we we gave context to where the president was which is why we had him had covered that with uh, two cameras where he's walking out and you see in the background as he approaches the podium uh, the site where the the uh, where the World Trade Center towers once stood and then in the foreground is the the flag at half mast, whipping in the wind. But then, when you got to the podium, it was perfectly silent, no wind whatsoever. And uh, we wanted to make sure that also you could see the Statue of Liberty, which I think a lot of people uh, think it, it, you know, is probably lit up just that way. But that's not what the case was. We had to light it, um, and this entailed a, a
2: just an enormous amount of logistics of gathering people together in common purpose. To pull this event off, and it meant what staging uh, an enormous amount of lights uh, in the right places Mm -hmm. on rough waters at night, and you were able to pull this off and bring it together and get people to share your vision and execute it. And the just really, I think it was a flawless event.
0: Well, we really had to sell it uh, to you know. We had actually a backup location in case that wasn't going to work. In case for whatever reason the president uh, could not go. To Ellis Island by boat, if the waters were too rough, and they, uh, and for a variety of reasons, if the if the service Secret Service decided not to go, we needed to have an indoor location somewhere uh, that would work. That was in. in so you Manhattan. were fully redundant for that. Oh yeah, and in fact, our backup location was the Rainbow Room at NBC of all things, <laughs> uh, which shot a lot, down to Southern Manhattan. <laughs> exactly right. It was a perfect shot. So that was our backup in case all else failed. But so we had everything in place at both. Locations and, as everyone recalls that day, it was incredibly windy. And uh, in fact, I was down at the uh, what 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 everyone was referring to as uh, you know Ground Zero, where that open space was at the bottom of the ramp, and the winds were coming through there so fast. Actually, earlier the day, that day, got knocked off my feet literally because the wind we had a gust over 75 miles an hour. And it knocks several people down, including me. <laughs> so. Most people
2: know the image, but to be out there, especially at night, to have been able to pull off, uh, you know, with all of your network mm-hmm. partners mm-hmm. and Waka, And, and as, you, as you rightly state, audio is always the most important bit. I mean, you can see it, but the intimacy comes from hearing the president and really hearing him, the mm-hmm. tone of his voice, the intent of his words, uh, all married together in that singular shot uh which was leveraged by this walkout and some understanding of the context of the day and and where we were literally mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's just one example another one that people i think will remember was in 2002 and that was mm-hmm. at uh, mount rushmore right and uh you know you have ideas of what mount rushmore looks like but to produce a presidential event with all that that entails and all the press that's in tow and to be able to deliver against that charge the way that you did help walk us through that because you really juxtaposed the president of the United States with these fabled presidents mm-hmm. in a unique way.
0: Well, I, there was a, actually a lot of discussion about it because, uh, that's, you know, it was kind of controversial where, you know, did, you know, with a lot of people worried that, you know, was, did that mean that the president was trying to know, compare himself a, right. that he should be etched in there and so you know there was a lot of talk about you know was that the right decision should we do that or shouldn't we do it and in fact you know we made uh, in order to get that shot we all talked about it at length so i'll have to say it's a, it was a group decision well, what was the substance but, of that
2: address do you remember
0: um well we were talking about You're announcing the department of homeland security right <laughs> that's right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah I think it actually had to do something uh, with uh, with the. US <coughs> Park Service actually so it was a, a wildlife uh, type thing and we had uh, a backdrop that we had actually when we decided that we were going to commit to the shot with that in the cut shot as opposed to the backdrop we uh, actually made a, a backdrop to go behind should it. we
2: stop for a second we want to make sure that as we go through this and in, in our parlance that people understand what a cut shot is so i'll give that to you yeah. to
0: explain sure sure so uh the first is the head-on shot obviously from uh, the platform that's directly in front of the stage it, it faces direct and then there's the profile shot as profile. we all know which is the cuts which kind of gives you that angle off to the side and there could be several cut shots really but i mean it doesn't have to be right there uh, you can also have uh, a buffer shot, as we call it, right, uh, which is in that area between the stage and the audience where you sometimes bring the photographers and camera persons in close to the, to the president or whoever's on at the podium and you shoot straight up because if you have a nice shot that you've set up like some sort of a banner above their heads… You get a really nice shot uh, if you've set it up correctly.
1: And if you're in the Black Hills of South Dakota and you're getting the <laughs> local South Dakota press, largely who will fill the main, what's called the main riser back mm-hmm. uh, behind the audience, mm-hmm. and they'll be shooting straight on at the event, mm-hmm. it's these... Uh, pool photographers and and pool video that go along with you on Air Force 1 that are allowed into this close in buffer area mm. and if you're a photo editor or a producer back at ABC News there's no way that you're that you, the people that you assign to go on these trips can be allowed back into Washington if they don't have that shot for posterity made of the president against the the uh, Gustav Borglum sculpture of Mount Rushmore
0: Correct. Yeah. And you want to make sure that you give them that shot. And it's like you said before, I mean, if you give it to them, they're going to take it. And that's the key is like setting up these shots. But also, uh, and I think you are sort of heading around to this, you you help them along because there there are those couple of moments that you have time to tell them about what the shots are, are set up to do, you know, so that you can sort of communicate to them what it is that's going to be in their shots once they get in position. Because, as you said, they sort of rush in at the last minute, sort of take their positions and go in. So if you can brief them up a little bit, which is what we all used to do, that was always a very helpful thing to do. And obviously the local press was always there ahead of time, so (laughs) you have plenty of time to talk to them.
1: So, Scott, this begs sort of the obvious question. And as a, a presidential events guy, it's hard for me to ask because you give me a chance to fly out to Mount Rushmore or to the Abraham Lincoln... Or to Ellis Island and look around at angles and light for a couple days I will be the first person on that plane because I love to create those events but if you go back to Ronald Reagan and George the first George Bush and even the Clinton years the Oval Office was used for a lot of these key moments now President Clinton started to take the take to the road more to do more of these produced events but if you think about one year after 9-11 with the backdrop of New York Harbor and Lady Liberty or Mount Rushmore or uh, Katrina and, and Jackson Square Jackson mm-hmm. Square that was Scott forza
2: mean, mm-hmm.
1: uh, h- h- Talk about the the sort of central character you had to work with which was George W. Bush mm-hmm. the White House communications operation Which said we'll be more effective communicating this message by firing up Air Force One bringing all these men people materiel to these event sites, deploying Scott's Forza rather than writing good speech and giving it from the Oval Office?
0: Yeah, I, you know, that's one thing that really I, I trace back to the president, because, I mean, I really think he wanted to step outside the box and not always be in the Oval Office, because, you know, and, and certainly the communication structure at the White House was set up in a way that would support that. I mean, Karen... Hughes who who you know and Dan Bartlett, I mean mm-hmm. they're very very familiar with uh, the the president and what he likes and we all became to you know to know exactly you know just as you did with what president clinton liked we we just, uh, you know we of course became very familiar with what president bush's likes and dislikes were and he was very much somebody who would really take a step outside the box and would very uh, be very trustworthy of his staff so that gave us a lot of latitude to do things that had never been done before, and uh, and I think for me that was a thrill because we got to go out there and sort of figure out a way, you know, if there was a particular message, you know, you you deliver the message from where from the source where it is where it's located. I mean, we we have done uh, many 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 um, uh, addresses to the nation that were uh, at it on location somewhere just so that we could give it context for what. The president's message was you know one of the
2: stories that for journalists here in Washington uh, still is worthy of being bought a beer if somebody who was involved will tell it uh, was the night in October of 2001 when uh, George W Bush uh, at with your help uh, called the networks uh, very late in the day and gave a momentous address to the nation, not from the Oval Office, but from a place that no presidential address has ever been given before or since uh, to announce the beginning of Operation Enduring Freedom, um, which was our attack on the Taliban in Afghanistan.
3: On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan.
2: Mm -hmm. Walk us through that night, because that one that one came up and bit a lot of people in the ass. And it was only mm-hmm. because of you and some foresight, as I know, uh, from hearing this story many times, that, that it actually happened.
0: Uh, yeah, we really had to plan that carefully because we knew that day was coming. The, uh, the issue was that we needed to keep it secret, uh, basically, so that uh, uh, when the, uh, our um, forces were going into attack, that we didn't telegraph their movements. So uh, in order to do that, um, the president wanted as as uh, as little lead time for the press to know about it as possible so that it wouldn't impact the um, But tell us the location reaction. you chose and, and, and why that was and, and how mm. you
2: pulled that off.
0: Yeah, so the, the way we connected all of it is that uh, we tried to think of a place that was sort of symbolic of showing that Washington was was up and running. Every business was as usual. Uh, we wanted to to also do it in a something uh, room that was symbolic, the Treaty Room up in the residence of the White House on the second level, and, which and is rarely seen.
2: Right. Let's talk about that just as a location for a second, mm-hmm. Josh. Uh, when you were in the White House, did you spend a lot of time up there in what, you know, we call it the treaty room. That's the official name. It's on the uh, the residence floor of, of the White House.
1: Basically off limits to everyone but president and close staff working late, late into the night. And uh, I only really got to go up to the second floor, of the living, the so-called living quarters, when I'd do an occasional turn as the president's personal when the other guys were all taking well-deserved time off. So for us, doing anything up in the uh, second-floor living quarters was only going to be moments like uh, Tom Brokaw or Diane Sawyer saying day in the life and a very rare trip upstairs.
2: Yeah, Scott Swartz is a student of history and a student of the White House, and uh, he's been in every single room there is to see and has prepared detailed histories of what those rooms represented across uh, American presidencies, but uh, to have collaborated with the president, George W. Bush, on this space and to bring those people into that space uh, with very little warning, Scott, I'm just so impressed because that's a view that you might have thought you'd seen before, but no one had ever seen that angle and that shot before.
0: Yeah, and um, and for us it was, it was important, and I think for the president um, it was really a message that he wanted to send because it was the one... Uh, room that was not only symbolic in terms of, uh, of the storyline for you know when the press said, "Well, where was that? Or when they realized where they were, they were able to write about you know this, the, the, the speech in the context of where the location was, but also on television, you could see someone literally flying a kite in the background. So it was just you know, one of the M cars going by and you know business as usual, which is really what the president wanted to, to send that message. I mean here we are. You know it was it was one of those moments not only are we you know are, uh, retaliating for the, the, the attacks that were uh, made on America, but also, hey, look we're you didn't you didn't hurt us. we're still we're still in business. And I think that that was the message he wanted to get across. Josh uh, uh, it was right literally on the, in the, just
2: in the days after uh, Katrina hit the Gulf Coast uh, that Scott and I, uh, cross paths again um, mm-hmm. in the Roosevelt Room of the White House I was uh, tapped to do a live interview this was uh, for all intents and purposes the first real live sit-down interview the president was going to do in his presidency mm-hmm. it was with Diane Sawyer uh, It was in the Roosevelt Room It was just after 7 in the morning And we didn't get the call to come in and start to work on it until about 7 the night before And thank God Scott was there, because if you know Scott, and for those of you who are listening to us on Polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, uh, when Scott's Forza is working on something, he doesn't sleep, and the people around him strive for for perfection. And so when we were working all night long, Scott and his people were there with us to make it work. And uh, that interview was, was an important interview, but it didn't necessarily go as well for the president as it might have. Uh, on some some substantive details, but it was, what, just a couple weeks later, a few weeks later, that you took the president and the rest of us into what was essentially the heart of darkness at that point and lit it up in Jackson Square. Mm -hmm.
3: I'm speaking to you from the city of New Orleans, nearly empty, still partly
0: underwater, and waiting for life and hope to return.
2: Uh, Talk to us about that address to the nation.
0: Yeah, I think uh, for Jackson Square, um, we really, I mean, I think everybody felt strong that that's where the address should be. I mean, it was, you know, where it was happening. And that was sort of Jackson Square was symbolic of the heart of New Orleans, really. I mean, everybody can relate to Jackson Square. So we tried to do it in a way that was not going to be disruptive to um the city in any way uh power wise or otherwise well I there mean,
2: really wasn't any power down there was there
0: we had uh, uh, our own generators that we just had from you know that were uh, right owned by the military actually which were owned by the white house um uh so that we didn't impact any of the local power but all those things had to be thought through because some of the you know obviously reporters will will try to to look for all those little things that, that to try to take away from the moment, but. Uh, it was important to be there that day, and I think um, I don't think there's any regrets about having done it.
1: I'll say this for history: that uh, your event in Jackson Square came off a heck of a lot better than John McCain's uh, visit there a few years later at the beginning of his presidential effort. <sighs>
0: Yeah, that's uh, yeah, definitely different, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: you know, a, a, as producers, uh, mm-hmm. whether we wear the hat of a news network or we work uh, in the White House, we've all had great successes and we've all had things that we wish we could have done different. You know, there are a couple things that come to mind of my tenure. Uh, when And my work sort of predates uh, the Internet age, so I couldn't sort of become the Google association with something that flopped. But I brought President Clinton to uh, the beach to, to Omaha Beach in Normandy Mm. uh, to walk down from uh, Colville-sur-Mer Cemetery with Medal of Honor winners to say a prayer Mm -hmm. for the first uh, infantry division that came ashore. And after he'd completed that uh, photo op, we had to do another uh, moment with Eddie Adams, a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. But Uh it took a while to set up. Mm. And the president, uh, President Clinton, looked out at a small pile of stones that I had placed there. With working with the Secret Service to tell the president that's the that's the point of beyond which you should not go. We cannot give you counter sniper coverage beyond there. And the president was, well, frankly, a little bored. Uh, but he'd also been incredibly moved by days and days of walking among the cro- the uh, crosses of American servicemen who were in the cemeteries of Cambridge and atuno and and Normandy. And he fashioned them into a cross. And what was a beautiful series of events from Pointe a to the Colville Cemetery to down onto Omaha Beach, was suddenly overwhelmed by this unplanned moment or unforeseen problem that I didn't think about before I had executed the plan for the event. And as I, as I wind the clock forward to uh, May 1, 2003 and the visit to the USS Abraham Lincoln, I'm curious about how you decide how, the planning that went into bringing the president aboard the ship at that day at that hour, and things that happened that you might have done differently had you to, had you to do over it again.
0: Well, I mean, you know, much has been talked about with that event, and I think that um, it, if you really go back to what it was all about, uh, I mean, I think the the uh, the one thing I think that people regret the most is people that are on the outside not understanding what really happened. And I think that um, uh, the press really mischaracterized uh, the entire event. And I, and I say this because uh, we personally met with those on the ship, and, and um, the intent of the message that was put on the ship, uh, Mission Accomplished, was really aimed at the families on the shore so that uh, this was as everyone may or some people may or may not know that was the longest deployment of any uh, in naval history of any um, uh, of any aircraft carrier so it was uh, 11 months and uh, it's they're typically like five to six so this was a a very big deployment for these folks and when they came back to shore in San Diego um, uh, half of the of the of the um uh, naval personnel were um got off in san diego and then the other half got off in portland oregon and uh i'll never forget that uh during the event everybody was really i, I gotta say we didn't really get any any sort of um uh any sort of criticism on the actual event i think it was executed as well as you could execute yeah, uh, it yeah the message that yeah, and we ran. You know, I mean, there's so much technicalities that went into that. Uh, you know, fiber optics, satellite dishes that were had to be placed on the on the on the ship. That's a whole other story. But I think in terms of the messaging, uh, the message was really meant for the, the for the uh, the naval personnel and their families to say, look, our mission was accomplished, and I. And and, uh, in fact, if you ever uh, play back the tape, roll back the audio of what the president said, at no time did he ever say that that was the the end of uh, military action.
3: Thank you all very much. Admiral Kelly, Captain Card, officers and sailors of the USS Abraham Lincoln, my fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended in the Battle of Iraq The United States and our allies have prevailed.
0: So it was interesting, but that is, in fact, what uh, those on the ship, you know, the the journalists that were on the ship decided that they were going to to say. That's right. I mean, if you go back and look at other histories,
1: you hear secretary of defense rumsfeld talking about how he had worked over the speech draft with the white house and scrubbed it for sort of this the the problem of tense which is to ascribe anything to the past tense this thing is over this mission is accomplished and you you imbued President Bush's remarks on the sta- uh, on the flight deck of the carrier with things that said, you know, the work must go on. the the pro- The challenges that lie ahead will be very difficult. And yet, and it was it was a extraordinarily well executed event from the la- landing in the SB3 Viking to the to the walkout to hail to the chief and the placement of the of the uh, skittles just so but uh, I mean this has come stop like' here we have to talk about the skittles but, but, people, <laughs> but it's the work you know it, it's it, the skittles are perfect
0: but those two but words, who are the
2: skittles to explain that to people Scott will explain the skittles.
0: Yeah, the skittles are, uh, you know, of course on an aircraft carrier, every uh, do every responsibility assigned uh, is is designated with a different colored jersey. Right on the flight deck. On the flight deck, right. So um, you know, look like a bag of skittles. Yeah, yeah. They yellow, look like a, red, yeah, green. All, yeah, exactly. They all represent the color of the skittles. That's so right. But that's why the they get, the visual
2: uh, organization of that day. Having watched it, having seen it, uh, having talked to Josh so much about it. And and you know what? We've talked about this on Polyoptics before, Mm -hmm. Josh. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it with uh, former White House press secretaries, uh, with Ari Fleischer Mm -hmm. and others. And at the time in the space, Mm -hmm. it was one of the most patriotic and moving events I had ever witnessed. The President of the United States in a flight suit landing on the deck of an aircraft carrier that was coming back after an 11-month deployment, fighting the fight for the American people against the terrorists. And, uh, you know, as you point out, mission accomplished, which was right there on the bridge, uh, which was uh, really not even in anyone's tight shot, it wasn't a story that was spoken about for weeks later, stayed on board the ship as giving evidence to what?
0: That's right. Uh, it, it did stay on the ship. And in fact, uh, days later, you see it chugging toward Portland, Oregon live. I'll never forget, I saw the shot live on MSNBC, and it was still there because they wanted to leave it there for the message for the, those who were on the shore waiting for them in Portland, for those other uh, men and women that were on the ship. And, uh, you know, and there was discussion about that message, obviously. I mean, everyone asked all those questions. Same thing that we're talking about now. Everybody certainly thought well, about ahead of time. Well, we've all
2: scrutinized the messaging and, yeah. and, and what it may be perceived okay. as versus what it was offered for its intent. This one got away, and it just sort of... Someone said to me today as I was talking about... Uh, coming to uh, to do our show they said, you know I think that those two words have been killed for all of us for for, for time And I'm, I don't know if that's true but- I mean
1: look the three of us have all had great Achievements in presidential production through the use of words. And it goes back to what Scott said at the very beginning of this conversation people's attention span is too short, network airtime is too brief to allow for the full exposition of presidential remarks. But if you can come up with those two or three or four words that tell a story in one frame whether it's a print picture a still picture for a newspaper or that brief piece of video that's muted while i'm running on the treadmill you've won but the only criteria that you have to use is sort of present tense like meeting america's challenges protecting america's values things that show sort of an ongoingness rather than a it's it's one and done we're all over we can we can put a a, a notch into our uh, our gun there
2: You know, uh, folks who are listening to us uh, here on POTUS, Polyoptics uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Radio, um, we are joined today uh, by Scott Sforza, who's someone we have the greatest admiration for and someone for uh, whom I have uh, uh, owed so much and uh, have learned so much, and uh, a man who has pioneered presidential communications and done so uh, in a way that has sort of put us on a path towards uh, what future presidencies are going to do and what this presidency is also doing. I want to take a, a bit of a left turn, no pun intended, because uh, we have Uh, Also joining us in studio for this episode of PolyOptics, the man. They call the rabbi. Is that right Josh?
1: That's right Steve Rabinowitz. I mean we've been talking to Scott Sforza for a while and uh, and Adam and you and I uh, We walk on Steve Rabinowitz's shoulders uh, and following his footsteps. Steve was the first ever Director of production of the White House and I've I've known Steve going back to the 1988 campaign But that was certainly not his first campaign, but no one taught me more more about how the visual works than Steve. He taught me about motion, about how to to suggest to a pool photographer that they might squat just in one particular place. That if they if they just be patient, the candidate will walk right to him, accompanied by uh, a bunch of students or soldiers, and we'd make this shot of motion that you couldn't make from standing behind a podium. So, I mean, Steve walked into an event with a, a producer's eye, a photographer's uh, zeitgeist, and a, a politician's uh, ability to work all this stuff out. And there's nothing that about producing the presidency that I didn't learn from Steve or, but anyway, It's It's great to have him here.
4: You're very sweet, Josh. Thank you. And You're welcome to say that over and over again. It's very nice as I will
1: <laughs> So I mean St- Steve you you were the first director of production, uh, but you brought so much of these ideas from uh, the 1984 campaigns and into 88 and uh, When you went into the 92 campaign, I'm not sure when you started with Governor Clinton Did you envision that it might end up uh, in the White House in the in that role?
4: No, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy so I'd worked on a million losing presidential campaigns before I uh, lucked on to the Clinton guy. And uh, my, my, my friends in Arizona, where I grew up, nobody everybody thinks me the New York Jew, but I grew up in Tucson. Uh, and my friends in Tucson called me the, the kiss of death, because whoever I worked for, beginning with my local congressman, Mo Udall, when I was six, okay, I was 18, um, uh, all lost. You know, I could lose, as, as a lot of us did, multiple presidential campaigns in the same in the same cycle um and uh i joined clinton in in april of that cycle you know it was so early then like compared to now that clinton himself remembers me being with him from the start and i wasn't i was i actually started with uh well i'm just getting a look at you and i don't think i'd forget if you were by my side thanks i think (laughs) Steve's Um, hard to miss. (laughs) I actually, uh, I actually started with Bob Kerry that cycle, but no, Josh. In the, in the, in the early days, you know, we didn't think. I mean, it wasn't just along for the ride, but uh, we never thought, you know, that it would, that it would go where it did, or that, uh, you know, or that it would take us personally there. And uh, it was really, it was really an extraordinary thing. And of course, during the campaign, you could see it building and building momentum, and. And and then, you know, finally it it just it went and then it got to be so big that you'd lose track of just how huge it was. You know, we won. That was amazing. But the next day we were already doing stuff in the transition.
1: I mean, you were designing the, the presidential transition briefing area down in Little Rock, Arkansas pretty quickly, right?
4: Right. Like immediately. And then we're doing transition events and then, you know, other people are working on the inaugural and, you know, we show up and the guy's president and you're already walking down Pennsylvania Avenue and, you know, you walk in the... You know, is nodding his head. In he's the lived gate. this too. Yeah, I'm sure the same the same experience. And, you know, you never get a chance to just stand there and go, wow, oh my God, how did we get here? How did I get here?
1: Well, I mean, in fact, I mean, you brought a sort of entrepreneurial air to the 92 campaign. And not only did you tell me in New York at the Democratic National Convention at uh, Madison Square Garden that you were about to get on the governor's campaign plane full-time, but you already sort of had a contract with the campaign to provide them a new kind of technological services. Can you tell us about that?
4: Sure. we ha- I had a little satellite firm, which was uh, just about the first in, in campaign politics or in any kind of politics where we would satellite events of the candidates uh, to local TV stations around the country. And we would facilitate one-on-one interviews with local stations around the, the original country. political satellite media tour. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure! And mm-hmm. we did just a, just a million of them. And, and that's I had, when they're not easy either. I had a little operation, and it moved to uh, it moved to Little Rock, and my colleague Jeff Eller uh, brought it under his under his wing. We're all fans of Jeff's, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was right going there. on while I was on the plane. Traveling and it, it was a it was a tremendous twofer. It was a really a wonderful thing. By the way, if you could get the Obama people to to do that again with me, that would be sweet. Rabbi, Re- <laughs> they don't need no stinking satellite truck. I know, apparently not.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, the thing that 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 we will remember y- your time in the White House for, and one of the most memorable White House White House events in history, I think, has to be the uh, handshake between uh, Prime Minister Rabin and and Chairman Arafat sort of facilitated by, by Bill Clinton as, uh, as the first treaty between the Israelis and the Palestinians uh, took place. The sound we heard today, once again as in ancient Jericho, was of trumpets toppling walls.
4: The walls of anger and suspicion between Israeli and Palestinian, between Arab and Jew. This time, praise God, the trumpets herald not the destruction of that city, but its new beginning. Now let each of us here today return to our portion of that effort, uplifted by the spirit of the moment, refreshed in our hopes and guided by the wisdom of the Almighty, who has brought us to this joyous day. Go in peace. Go as peacemakers.
1: What was your role in that?
4: Well, thanks, Josh. You know, ironically, it was 18 years ago this week, um, and uh, it was an amazing thing. It was the height of the Oslo Peace Accords that had actually been started under uh, the previous President Bush. You know, a lot of people don't realize that it started in a Republican administration. And uh, sadly, tragically, we were I think we were closer to a comprehensive Middle East peace agreement then than we are today, uh, and we have a very difficult week coming up. For any supporters of uh, any kind of peace in the Middle East. Um, you know, look, all the politics had been done on a, on a level much higher than, than me, but uh, it came down that there was going to be this agreement signing. Uh, and I remember us uh, sitting together in, uh, in the sit room, in the situation room, which was kind of cool for me because it's not like I had never been there, but, you know, we were guys who didn't have like a million meetings in the sit room. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was kind of fun. And it was supposed to be this little event in the Rose Garden, it was going to be a little agreement and peace treaty signing in the Rose Garden.
1: What's a thousand extra chairs? Right,
4: exactly. And then the thing just grew and grew and grew. And there was you know, tons of pressure from the Jewish community and the uh, Arab American community and the diplomatic corps. And everybody wanted in on this event. And so we moved it to the South Lawn. And then we said, you know, what the heck, you know, invite everybody. And, uh... It was just a blast on so many levels. And and, and back then, you know, I, I don't know how it was for, for you guys, for you three guys, but it, it was almost like I had no boss. Like, it, we just had amazing exactly. reign ra- exactly. of the place. There, nobody had a vision. It was our vision, mm. you know, yours, you mm. know, you guys. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we built a stage and set the chairs. And what was also fun was we had insane media coverage. I'm told it was the first time that we allowed live network anchors to broadcast from the South Lawn. So, like, ev- not only everybody came and everybody took it live, but I mean, you know, all the big network evening anchors. And it was just, it was a crazy, crazy time. None of that in the
2: Reagan and, and Bush years? Because i mean, i mean—I lived through it a little bit, and I know you did a lot. We, in Bush, what a pain in the ass. We to did, have those but guys I, I can't side, imagine. <laughs> yeah, but
0: the logistics involved at that time, just to get run the, the lines uh, out to the cameras and everything, was, was extraordinary. I mean, what you had to go through—it was—it
4: was huge, but it was—it was so cool. And you know, as like this—you know—Jewish kid from Tucson, <laughs> it was also fun on a personal level. You know, it shared my politics. I'm a little left in the in the peace process politics and it was just it was really really an amazing time you know all of us did so many things in in these different White Houses that it was it's sort of easy to forget what a big damn deal it was and this that day was a rare time when I thought wow this is big
1: what happened in the diplomatic reception room uh, prior to the walkout onto the south lawn with clinton rabin and arafat and, and did you did the choreography of the handshake worked as you anticipated and and how did you set up the the still photographers to get exactly the angles that we'd hope to get that day
4: well as luck would have it there were a million still photographers <laughs> and so for once it was a little hard for them for them to miss it but no, this was something that this was something that Rahm Emanuel, uh, as a political operative in the White House, had uh, had kind of engineered, and of course, other people had engineered the the politics of it. And there was conversation in the in the dip room, as we call it, the diplomatic receiving room, that uh, that oval-shaped room on the on the ground floor of the south side of the White House. And uh, there was you know sort of kibitzing, if I uh, to use uh, Arafat's term. Uh, um, before going out and, you know, people straightening themselves out. But there was not a choreography. We didn't, like, practice the handshake or practice the, the Clinton position. Um, it, 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 it had been negotiated in a rom way, and then it happened exactly right. But there wasn't—we didn't do a, a take, a secret take in the dip room. Scott Sforza, uh, you are no stranger to—
2: enormous unprecedented events on the south lawn of the white house as well will you give us one what's your top was it was it the queen's arrival was it uh, and, and if so talk us through that because like the rabbi uh these things just take on a life for their own and then you know there may be a deputy chief of staff for the president but the titular head of, of of that event i know was scott sforza
0: well, I, you know, I always say it's a group effort whenever you put these things together. But like Steve said, I always think, uh, I always used to say if you stopped to think about what you were doing, you couldn't do it. Because it is so unbelievable when you stop and think about what you were able to, to be lucky enough to be part of. So, And I would say for that reason, historically, uh, there were a couple of... of uh, Amazing ones, but I think the Queen's visit was a really iconic one, and I, I just think because it was just the the whole pomp and circumstance of it, and and you know you work with the with, with Buckingham Palace, they all come over. We had the custom. Caught up one of our podiums because we didn't want the uh, the incident happening with the talking hat, as we all remember, <laughs> so many yes. years ago. So there's just, a, there's yes a cut do. down blue goose that yeah. still exists with your name on it. I can attest that <laughs> to the world. Well, we actually used um, well when when uh, we first started. Um, I did not like the just the blue goose and the. Um, and what was called the Toast Lecter. And so I, I decided to make a new one. Oh,
1: that's, that's right. like having your own fabric and, your shop. Uh, no, the shop. falcon.
0: Talk about that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Falcon, which is what we used for the queen. OK, so that's what hers was. But we cut four inches off of it so that we could use it for You know her.
2: that, guys? Uh, st- Rabbi, do you know the falcon podium? This is like uh, what everybody aspires to on the campaign trail for presidents these days.
0: It, it, I think that this is Mac- not the
4: eagle podium that they no, use not at state eagle dinners podium. inside. No,
0: it's uh, typically now used uh, uh, all the time at the press conference. It's like a lectern it, with a big, thick... It's got the, the, the top uh, part, and then it flares down oh, at the Oh, it's bottom. a little, and it's it's
4: way, way more narrow than the goose. You know right. how the U.S. Navy exactly. gives
1: away all, all of its old frigates? We give all away our, all our old toast lecterns to other countries that need them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't go there,
2: because Forza can tell gets. you about a few uh, countries for yeah. whom he's designed a few podiums.
0: Yeah, no, but that was how, that was really fun to do that, and, and we made a actually we made a prototype at a. The only way the only way we could build it was if we bought Waka a new um, metal bending machine.
2: I've been out there to see it so, out at the Navy Yard. It's, yeah, they are incredibly uh, proud of that capability and mm-hmm. the
4: fabrication efforts that they have. Uh, do you, have you ever been out there, Steve? You know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I haven't, but I I did get to work with those guys. Just a few nights ago at, uh, at the Kennedy Center, my, my, I don't know if it was my first Obama event or it was certainly a first in a long time, and I'm still, uh, I'm still huge fans. They're, you know, they're the best. We used yeah. uh,
2: Sforza's uh, state arrival, Josh, for the uh, Queen of England for uh, something that I'll never forget on my watch, which was the, uh, the visit of uh, Pope Benedict right Uh, to the White Mm -hmm. House and that also took on a life of its own we tried to to keep Scott's playbook in mind for everything that we did that day And the social office didn't want to deviate because they knew that they had a a program that worked Uh, and it was much different it was much smaller in the pomp and the circumstance inside the White House and all of the things that would go on uh, after the arrival but the number of people that were there required building like a stadium set I mean I, we I had uh, Scott what was we, we must have had bleachers mm-hmm. at three different levels um, there were over 100,000 people, I think, on the South Lawn of the White House, and it required a whole new... I, I
0: think that was the largest number that was had uh, been on the South Lawn. It was from unbelievable. What, from what the they witness. said, but uh, it was big. Can we
2: share a secret? Everyone, Josh, tell me if this has been your experience as well. Uh, but and I think Scott shared this with me at, at some point before it happened, and, and then I, I witnessed it myself. But whenever you have that many people in flannel uniforms, from the fife and drum to the people who are... <laughs> someone like, well, no. always
4: passes out, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, you always no. worry. You always that's, have to keep them hydrated, <laughs> and
0: that's
1: why you have a White House medical unit. I mean, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, uh, um,
4: well, I, 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 I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. Papal visits, but I'd love to hear more about state visits. I'm jealous. I know you. I'm sure you would, Josh. And I'm afraid <laughs> we're going there. Um, but I'm jealous because I never did a full-blown state visit, and so I'd love. You know, I'd love to hear more about it. You know, my closest thing was like whenever I needed. You know what is it? Fifty-seven guys holding uh, colorful flags. You know you could order up the S and T's, right? The states and territories from the guys at uh, at Fort Myer, who I also saw. Who I also saw last week, and that was a lot of fun. You know, it was just amazing to be able to like bring this stuff in and say, okay, you guys mm-hmm. stand over there, and they would stand over there, and it was a beautiful <laughs> thing. But it was nothing like. What state visits must have been? Well, for you guys. we were
0: we were very lucky because we were able to to sort of scrap the old state visit and re choreograph the whole thing from scratch. Because what we realized was that they had the podium, as you may the may remember. Are way off. Oh yeah, the the podium had been over by the tree, off to the side when you come out the south doors, and and so we decided we. Would so just, that
2: was that was the historically how. So this what we perceive now is the standard uh, block and tackle play
0: for a state arrival was re... It's all brand new. All brand new. Right, yeah, I mean, because uh, new. yeah, because all of, the, all of the military were out uh, in front. They weren't on the driveway. We moved them to the driveway. The car came in the other direction. We wanted the car door to open on the side of the cameras. It had previously opened on the opposite side, so you'd never see anything. You'd never see the handshake. No cameras could really get there without being in the big shot. So we, uh, we did that and also hung the seal on the, uh, the rail... We decided to yep. start doing that and then also On to On the make, blue room balcony? Right, and also have the president uh, and the heads of state and the first ladies ascend up the stairs as mm-hmm. opposed to go through the dip room and up the elevator. Because there's then, nothing grand about that. You right, just lose them. We decided, well, you know, the door off the the blue room, uh, the, the window opens into a doorway. So why not have them go up the staircase, wave out with the seal underneath of them, and it's an iconic shot. So, um, and they did, you know, everyone went for it. So... You know, we just decided to try to switch it up, and so fortunately it took. Good, for, good for
4: you. I think we it must have been before you. Everybody just thought, well, this is how it's done, and we can't change it. And
0: Well, in, cl- in fact. Some things the-
4: are set in stone, and good for you that they're not.
0: No, it, it was great. I mean, and, and in fact, uh, you're you're so right. I mean, like when you first do do that, everyone always would say, "Well, that's the way it's always been that's done." That's right. And I said, "Well, is there any rule that says we can ch- that we can't change it?" And they said, "No, absolutely, you can <laughs> change it." So, and we rehearsed as you had said at Fort Meyer many times, and then it came over to and we actually did uh, several rehearsals. I would bet 5 on the south lawn before we actually implemented. Yeah, Boston.
1: this uh, rabbi talking about uh, how we didn't have bosses uh, it, during some great months and and scott talking about how he redesigned the state arrival back in uh, 94 i had worked with freeman decorating and designed a brand new state arrival stage because i saw a lot of these problems that scott did that the angles were all wrong that that the head the head-on shot was actually shooting into the the driveway itself and the trees rather than the south portico and this beautiful stage was delivered to the south lawn for the arrival uh i think of the of uh Francois Mitterrand, and uh, I had to do a pre-advance to Indonesia. And somewhere over the Pacific, uh, while I was flying to this pre-advance, my stage was sort of looked at by the social office uh, and saying, oh, that looks like a wedding cake. Uh... And I heard that it was completely dismantled, piece by piece, carried off to a warehouse, never been seen again, and not until Scott was able to redesign the state arrival ceremony was anything done about that event.
4: You weren't there to protect... To protect the stage, you know, it's so funny hearing Scott say that. Uh, people said, it, "It's it's never been done that way, or it's never been changed." Or you know, we're, I'll bet we're four guys whose favorite words are "were." Well, it it's never been done that way before, or it's always been done this way, and to which we always responded, "Well, this time I think it'll be different." The
2: fathers of polyoptics. This conversation that we've been having really represents the pinnacle of what we aspire to here on Polyoptics and POTUS. It's a discussion that lasted much longer than any of us could have anticipated. And so while we pause right now, we will be back with part two next week here on Polyoptics, only on POTUS.